This is episode 227 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Interspecies Chimeras, with Dr. June Wu. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Jun Wu from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He's on the podcast to talk about his work using interspecies chimeras to study fundamental biology. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Organoid News, a free weekly newsletter summarizing the latest research news, jobs, and events in Organoid Research. Use Organoid News to stay current with the latest applications and discoveries using Organoids. Subscribe for free at www.organoidnews.com. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off with something came out of a locker room. I mean, this is a little bit out of uh, left field, talking about Aspergillus fumigatus. We don't usually talk about fungus on the show. It's a cell show. But fungus they, they has cells too. Uh, newsflash. Um, and Aspergillus is ubiquitous in the air and soil and we inhale several hundred spores per day um and that's in several orders of magnitude higher in environments like construction sites or agricultural sites uh and typically in a healthy individual the spores are mechanically removed by airway cilia and expectoration um, and also immunologically by the alveolar macrophages and other innate and adaptive immune cells. But in, in immunocompromised patients, uh, you can have these spores persist uh, and it can result in local pulmonary pathology. Uh, it's called invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. I mean, this is troubling. It's germination of the spores in the lungs, some alien type uh, parasitism there, and then inflammatory response downstream of that. Uh, and it's typically observed in severely immunocompromised patients or recipients of intense chemo and radiotherapy or following allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. But the prevalence of IPA uh, is increasing because there's uh, these new therapies, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they where it's like a off-target effect uh, or a, a, a side effect. Um, and more than that, you have a high incidence of IPA in patients with pre-existing or concomitant uh, influenza, cytomegalovirus, and recently SARS, right? Coronavirus is becoming really relevant, um, even though maybe Corona is on the bad on the downswing, but it's it's not going anywhere. It's kind of endemic. I would I would speculate now. Um, so in the context of COVID, you can get prolonged hospitalization, extended ventilation support, and excessive morbidity and mortality. So yeah, it's an issue. This IPA and aspergillus being the root um, needs to be addressed. But conventional antifungal therapy, whether or not it works in the context of, I mean, we know it works for aspergillus with like athlete's foot, right? But uh, in the context of IPA, unknown. All right, so here's where we come out of left field. Uh, but you know, left field is very well populated these days in the CAR-T world. Uh, this is a story from Michael Hudecek and Jürgen Luffler. Uh, who they're from Würzburg, Germany, doing my best there with the pronunciations. They had a story in Science Translational Medicine where they tried to leverage CAR-T to attack 
aspergillus, right? They gene engineered uh, aspergillus fumigata specific CAR T cell and showed that it recognized uh, a conserved protein antigen in the cell wall of the hyphae. So, I mean, this is like surgical. Uh, and then in an in vivo model of IPA in immunodeficient mice, they show that the, these CAR T cells localized the site of infection. They reduced the fungal burden in the lung. And when you did adoptive transfer of those cells, it was even better with the antifungal efficacy and resulted in uh, overall improvement in survival. So, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know if anybody's going to be getting in some CAR T for IPA in the in the on event, right? Or or anything like that. But you know, it, I think this is, uh, I think, and maybe they will. I, 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 there's some persistent infectious fungal diseases, I'm sure that would be well suited to this, but let's say that everybody's not going with their classic antifungal approach using CAR-T. I think the real uh, Trojan horse here is how they're using CAR-T for everything. You know, when you're going after it for, for this fungal disease, I think all infectious diseases are on the table. We've talked about fibrosis previously on the show. We're going to circle back around to that in my second roundup story, but it looks like, you know, the, the there's a, just an endless list of targets that are going to be addressed by CAR-T, really the therapy of the century, if all of these targets pan out uh, being, you know, practical. Yeah, the potential is unlimited for something like this. I mean, it's not just infectious disease. It's not just disease, period. It's anything that has a presenting and that could be targeted by a modified CAR-T. If you need to clean out some tissues in some situations of fibrosis, you can do that. You can have a really unique application here with the, the antifungals. Um, it, it's, it's tremendous, like what you're alluding to. I mean, the fungus is absolutely among us, as the kids say. Um, but I think for, for the most situations, what we were saying here, you know, antifungals will do their job, but perhaps in extreme chronic cases of, you know, persistent fungal infections, this could be a, a really unique approach. Also, the fact that you mentioned that tyrosine kinase inhibitors have this potential off-target effect of causing IPA, that's terrifying to me as somebody who studies tyrosine kinase inhibitors in another context, which they cause cardiotoxicity in a lot of situations. So, you know, these drugs have a lot of off-targets effects, and this is this is not a pretty one. This is a, I definitely do want, do not want to experience this in my lifetime, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, as someone who suffered from asthma downstream of mold uh, as a youth, I mean, it's debilitating, and, and that that was mild. So just the idea of anything colonizing my lungs and germinating, yuck. Uh, you may argue that the we've jumped the shark maybe a little bit here. We're using CAR T for uh, antifungal, but as you said, there's a real a broad range of really serious uh, fungal conditions that could be addressed by this. And as we've been saying. This is really just the tip of the iceberg and applying CAR-T to everything under the sun. Absolutely. And I think you've got a little bit more in this area and in your next round of paper, but we'll stick to a blood adjacent story. We're talking about CAR-T and we're going to move on to more of a, I guess, a developmental biology story about the blood. This is coming from the lab of Lenzon in Boston at, you know, at Harvard, uh, this is, of course, what Lenzon does and has been doing for a long time, which is studying hematopoiesis using zebrafish as the, the workhorse model system in their laboratory, combined with amazing imagingologies that you can utilize in conjunction with zebrafish, of course, because they're very amenable to imaging, being transparent and small and all these things and genetically manipulable, very easy. 
So the title of this paper, which is actually a, it's, it's a science paper, is Quality Assurance of Hematopoietic Stem Cells by Macrophages Determines Stem Cell Clonality. First author here is Sam Watrous, and again, coming from Lenzon's lab. So we've been obviously, you know, talking about HSCs for a while on the show, and it seems like every single episode we have some sort of HSC story here. But this is unique because it reminded me of a story that we covered a while back about the macrophage cuddle. I don't know mm. if you remember that fr- that particular phrase that kind of stuck with me. That's exactly what's going on in this situation, but in sort of a different context. Apparently, these macrophages are cuddling these you know uh, hematopoietic stem cells during development. So we can dive a little bit <laughs> deeper into it. And there's a specific reason why acute interaction is actually happening. So we know that these tissue-specific stem cells, HSCs, can persist for a long time, can differentiate to maintain homeostasis, or even in severe situations, turn into cancer cells. This is the unfortunate reality of, of blood stem cell biology. But what about quality assurance? How do we make sure that these cells, these HSCs, hematopoietic stem cells in particular, are okay? They're high quality and they're maintaining their high quality over the course of a lifetime. Um, and in particular, new HSCs, newly formed blood stem cells, how do we ensure their quality as well? So what they did here is again, using some amazing imaging, live imaging, multiple genetic crosses here in zebrafish. They observed in their words, not mine, quote, intimate and specific interactions between macrophages and early blood stem cells in zebrafish embryos. So again, very cute. Uh, And there's very cute images in this paper as well. So these macrophage interactions led to either the removal of the cytoplasmic material and stem cell division of the HSCs, or actually complete engulfment and death of the HSCs. So they're doing a regulatory function, these macrophages are, in the the context of these HSCs. So they they used a cellular barcoding strategy and actually found out that a particular gene in, in, in protein calreticulin when knocked down or depleted, actually reduce the number of stem cell clones that established adult hematopoiesis. So they actually, you know, that's a really cool thing. They found a specific protein, a specific mechanism that when you regulate it can actually mess with this cuddling mechanism a bit. Um, So I think this is mind-blowing. Another really cool application for macrophages early during development. Certainly we have to consider the the species-specific side of this and the the evolutionary conservation of this particular mechanism, but really cool. And I think something that can only be enabled by some of the amazing high-resolution imaging that you can do in zebrafish and that they're also doing in the the Zahn lab for a long time now. So really cute, very unique study in my opinion. Yeah, you got to respect the macrophage, uh, a lot of unappreciated biology going going on there. but yeah, I'm glad you introed with that whole cuddling thing because that's what jumped out at me. I remember it was like a decade ago, legitimately a decade ago. I got a paper to review when I was, you know, still working closely with my mentor. They don't send lens on papers directly to me. I'll tell you that much. But I got a paper <laughs> to review. It was about the cuddling thing, and I was like, oh man, Len, with this anthropomorphizing of the, of the biology and all that. And I, I thought it was like, and my critique was, uh, it's just, it seems a little bit descriptive. And I was stuck on this idea of like, why are you calling it cuddling? Like, honestly, I'd be happier at that point. I would have been happier with the intimate interaction. That seems a little bit more scientific. But this, I think, is to, to, to Dr. Zahn's credit, is why he's such a, 
uh, admirable and inspirational scientist, I think, is because that's that's he starts with an observation. And I think that makes it really accessible to, to scientists of all levels is it, it really it's not in the weeds of the the language and the biology. It's something really that that jumps out at you, just an observation there, cuddling. And now here we are, a decade later, he's taken it all the way. You know, it started with that, and then as you uh, spoke about the the imaging, took it to another level. But now with the cellular barcoding, you know, he's really made an observation and then connected it to a real why, how biology question that has tremendous uh, impact and importance and relevance to disease and health and and mechanism. And so, uh, you know, you got to love uh, Len for, for his approach. And yeah, the way he, he makes these ideas accessible to people uh, by, you know, talking about things like intimate contact. But I mean, at the end of the day, this is an important story that was unearthed uh, after after a bit of a cuddle. Much respect to one of the gurus of HSC biology and lens on, and of course, the the amazing work that his lab did in this particular paper. But you make a really good point. I mean, part of the reason that, you know, certain papers make a splash and part of the reason that they take off is because of good science communication, which hopefully is something that we, you know, espouse and something that we encourage here on the show uh, is good science communication better than others sometimes. Um, but yes, this is a very important skill to learn no matter where you're working, what you're working on is how you can adequately convey the studies and the discoveries that you make. Another example of something like this is the the CD47 protein, which mm -hmm. was really worked on very heavily by the folks Stanford and Irv Weissman's lab. The quote is always the, the don't eat me signal. Right. So again, a very simple analogy, a very simple phrase that sticks with you. I still remember that. You know, I don't do anything close to CD forty seven, but I still remember what that particular protein, what what that signal does. It's it's the don't eat me signal, just because of that really important uh, phrase, and that's a a testament to good science communication. Again, right there. Um, so I guess yes, absolutely fantastic paper and a good reflection on the importance of good science communication. Absolutely. And we learned that during the pandemic, right? It isn't just among scientists who have their own language, but really at the end of the day, it's about getting the message across to the public so we can move the needle. Uh, in the case of the pandemic, it was about vaccination. That's a segue to my story here. And I mean, this might get the anti-vax crew a little riled up, but don't go crazy, people. No one's proposing to, to do this tomorrow. But um, I think the, the, the impact of this, like CAR-T, is... I mean, commensurate with CAR-T potentially, but I think a lot uh, more accessible as an idea, you know, as you were alluding to the don't eat me signal, the idea of vaccination is basic. You train the body and then it goes out and seeks out antigens and shuts it down, uh, usually in the context of disease, right, uh, of invaders, infectious disease. But here, this is a story like the CAR-T attacking fibrosis, a story about using vaccination to address uh, fibrosis in the liver and the lung. So, you know, fibroblasts are critical, uh, important for maintaining the structure of any solid tissue and homeostasis in that tissue. But there's this expansion of activated so-called fibrogenic fibroblasts and this maladaptive response in response to uh, chronic tissue damage or injury that results in organ failure by depositing all this extracellular matrix and this kind of, as again, maladaptive, uh, mal uh, non-productive uh, fibrosis. Um, 
And the global health burden of fibrosis is huge, specifically in the liver and the lung. These are major issues. Uh, and uh, there aren't many therapies. I mean, underscored, the, the unmet burden is huge. Um, now, in terms of how we can address this, we, we alluded to this earlier in the show. There have been uh, studies that, that use genetic ablation of fibrogenic cells to reduce fibrosis in mice. Uh, and this is using, you know, genetic uh, engineering of mice, not really feasible at all in a clinical context, but at least it uh, uh, says two things. One, that fibrosis can be addressed, and if it is, it can uh, improve the health of mice in this case. But also, the fact that you use these genetic approaches in mice show that there are genes uh, that specifically tag or mark fibrogenic cells, right? So, Based on that, there's been uh, multiple approaches using CAR-T, as we just talked about a bit, but engineering CAR-Ts to eradicate fibroblasts, um, that was based on uh, fibroblast activation protein, or FAP, in the heart. We talked about that on this show. Also, senescent cells that express urokinase plasminogen activator surface receptor, or UPAR, that's been used in the context of liver fibrosis. Uh, but those are cell-based therapies. And I think those have a lot of legs, frankly. I mean, I, I might go with CAR-T before I went with this approach, but it's always nice to have another arrow in the quiver. Uh, and this group, uh, which was led by Christian Stockman uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, reasoned that the proteins encoded by genes specifically expressed in fibrogenic cells can result in these self-peptides on the surface of fibrogenic cells that can be targeted. Uh, using a more vaccination-based approach, you know, T cells that are in the body, not uh, that are in integrated into the body or introduced into the body after engineering. Um, so basic immunization. Uh, and that's what they did. I, I, I think it was a pretty impressive uh, approach. I, I would have thought uh, that'd be a lot riskier, but it seems to have worked. Uh, they used in silico epitope prediction to identify uh, genes that would... Uh, drive self-peptides, um, and then they use those self-peptides to immunize these mice and demonstrate efficacy of this vaccination approach to mount a CD8-positive T-cell response that reduced fibroblasts and fibrosis in both the liver and lungs of mice. So, I mean, seems so straightforward. You know, you talk about getting a mod-RNA injection for vaccination against COVID. That was pretty easy. Um, could we do the same for fibrosis? I'm not sure. Arun, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think it's, again, similar to the, the previous study that you covered. The application, if this pans out, is so unlimited because, as you're alluding to, fibrosis is something that's almost universal across different disease states. Of course, you have fibrosis of the heart after myocardial infarction and liver fibrosis as well. So I I think there has to be a lot of work to validate this, especially in in a, a human setting. Um, but really, it's it's really a very cool approach, and it makes me think of some of the other novel vaccination based approaches that we've been talking about recently. I'm sure you remember the that tumor vaccine that folks have been working on. Even my former mentor Joe Wu had this IPS based tumor vaccine of where you can in introduce certain IPSCs where they're expressing a certain antigen and can serve as a quote vaccination strategy against cancer. So I, I think. Uh, Calling something a vaccine, it's not a vaccine in the traditional sense, perhaps, but I think the 
the approach and the 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 downstream is similar. So I think the applications are really unlimited here. I think there are a couple of things that they mentioned that they still need to do, and I'm kind of surprised why why they didn't do this. For one, they didn't do apparently they didn't do any single cell analysis to gain some more insight into the mechanisms of the fibrosis regression and liver regeneration. To me, that is really important in part because we always talk about single cell on the show and how accessible it is. But also because there are so many different populations in the liver that are critical to the regenerating liver and the cross, you know, cellular interactions there. So I think that would be a, in my mind, that would be a pretty easy experiment to do. And I'd be shocked if they weren't already doing that. So they probably covered their bases right there. But yeah, I mean, I think a really cool, perhaps universal approach to to addressing fibrosis. Yeah. Critically important, though, as you said, to look at the what's going on in that liver, because, you know, I think what we're, we're all, you know, ignoring the elephant in the room here, we're vaccinating against self peptides. And granted, these are cells that are in a kind of aberrant state. But I don't know, Glee one, Glee one is popping off in a lot of cells in my body. So if you want to rile up the anti-vax crowd, you, you say myocarditis with coronavirus. In the case of vaccination against fibrosis, you might have to worry about a whole other uh, spate of issues. So yes, as you said, needs to be verified, validated. The safety needs to be uh, really, really specked out in a lot of preclinical models before we go with anything like this. But I think what we're talking about today is concept and how we're in a really shifting landscape in, in terms of how we treat disease moving really well past this pharmacological paradigm toward a, a cell-based therapy that's not just, you know, building blocks, regenerative. It's really about using cells as smart therapies. And I, I'm just happy to be alive in this era, Arun, because I'll, I'll live a few years longer, hopefully. Hey, man, that's the dream. And speaking of concept, we're not really talking about a disease-related context in this next example. This is a very conceptual story, but in another way, this is super cool, very wild kind of stuff. I actually saw this story as, as it was unfolding online via Twitter, of course. I'm, I'm on Twitter, if you didn't know. Uh, Mickey Ebisuya, who actually was one of the former guests on our show, she posted this as a preprint article. The title of this paper is, it's a nature communications paper. Optogenetic control of apical constriction induces synthetic morphogenesis in mammalian tissues. This is really wild. And this is a it's a synthetic biopaper and perhaps a nice lead-in to our guest on the show today, Dr. Jun Wu. Um, basically, what the Ebisuya lab here and the first author here is Guillermo Martinsara. The first uh, the, the lab here was manipulating certain signaling pathways and certain growth path pathways. In uh, in cells, in particular, uh, uh, maiden Darby kid, canine kidney or MDCK cells, to really control how they grow, and they specifically controlled the motion and the constriction, the motility of these cells using light optogenetics, as we know, as a really amazing technology that's been pioneered by some folks like Carl Dyseroth at Stanford and and others as well. So this is. A, a unique approach to manipulate three-dimensional shapes of mammalian tissue, tissues. Um, and the name of this tool, which is, is a really fun name too, is called OptoShroom 3, an optogenetic tool that can achieve fast spatiotemporal control of apical constriction and 
mammalian epithelia. And so that's what they did here. They made this custom MDCK cell line that has built-in optogenetic controls, um, manipulated it using light, and uh, was able. they were able to show that when they shone light on these custom cells, it, it forced apical constriction, actually enhanced the folding of the, the epithelial sheet colonies on soft gels, and then they applied it. This is the, the really cool thing. They applied this optogenetic technology of being able to manipulate cell motion to organoids, to both mouse and human neural organoids. And just by shining a light on these organoids, these custom genetically modified organoids, it caused a thickening of the neuroepithelial, apical lumen reduction in optic vesicles, flattening in neuroectodermal tissues. And I can talk about this forever, but this is one of those studies where you just have to look at the videos, okay? The Ebisuya Lab, Mickey in particular, actually posted a really, really cool video on, on Twitter. I very much encourage you to check this out. This That's actually why I decided to pick this paper because that video just blew my mind of how you can just shine a light and then you can just control, can the, control the size and shape of an organoid in, in real time. It's wild to see. So check that out. Take a look, you know, uh, look at that particular video and check out this paper as well. It's a really cool synthetic biology approach and application more in the realm of developmental biology. Yeah, this jumped out at me, the first line of the abstract, the emerging field of synthetic developmental biology proposes bottom-up approaches to examine the contribution of each cellular process to complex morphogenesis. I mean, that says it. We've flipped the, the whole thing on its head. You know, synthetic biology, just this year, uh, the innovations, Arun, are really mind-blowing because it just changed now the way you even think about approaching your experiments. And... Obviously, Evacila uh, uh, was, was way ahead of the game here because um, this story has been brewing. But yeah, the, the idea of capitalizing on this kind of building block approach, uh, everything's converging. You know, optogenics, the cell printing and the synthetic bio. It's a brave new world, Arun. And again, just happy to be alive in science. So great. We got to talk to Jun Wu about this one. Absolutely. And I can see the application that this technology might have for his work. I don't know if you can have some sort of genetically customized uh, blastoid that has these optogenetic drivers. Maybe you can control blastoid development just by shining a light on it, which is mind-blowing to me. Science fiction. <laughs> well, we're there. Uh, get to that in a minute. Before we do, though, a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Looking for more information on organoids? Download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing. This essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered. Download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid ebook. All right, everybody, on the show today, we have with us a special guest, Dr. Jun Wu, who is assistant professor and endowed scholar at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Also a NICEF Robertson investigator, devastating news from the NICEF about Susan Solomon a few weeks back lost a really shining light in the field. Her legacy is strong and will be remembered. And we can talk with Dr. Wu about 
her impact and the NICEF's impact on his research trajectory in this interview. But before we get to that, the Wu Lab uses interspecies chimeras to study fundamental biology, conserved and divergent developmental programs, determination of body and organ size, species barriers, and cancer resistance. The lab also works to develop new applications for regenerative medicine. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, well, getting started, uh, interspecies chimerism, you know, it's part of like the human cultural narrative now going back millennia, you know, we're talking about mythical uh, implications there. So thinking about the actual scientific possibility, like in reality of chimerism has that kind of mythical overtone to it. But at the end of the day, the practicality of chimerism between species depends on a whole number of factors, one of which is uh, developmental compatibility, right? Uh, approaching two decades ago now, uh, I made some naive attempts for my doctoral work to pair human embryonic stem cells with mouse embryos, and it failed spectacularly, although I think it was an informative failure. Uh, but we've learned a lot since those days, in large part uh, due to your own work. So give us a brief review regarding the state of the art. What kind of interspecies chimeras have been attempted successfully to date? What are the boundaries and limitations uh, to, to generating chimeras of, chimeras of all sorts? So uh, interspecies chimeras are um, uh, research actually has been going on for uh, several decades already. And then uh, before the arrival of proponent stem cells, specifically the embryonic stem cells, researchers in the past often grab tissues uh, different developmental stages from one species into another species. Uh, some of the uh, application uh, can be used for to study the uh, developmental compatibility and also some of the features that are specific to a, a particular species. Uh, for example, between quail and duck, uh, uh, researchers have been, have been using the interspecies camera system to study the beak development, uh, including uh, others as well. Uh, with the arrival of embryonic stem cells and proponent stem cells that made uh, the generation of interspecies much easier. So now uh, we don't have to uh, isolate uh, embryonic cells, which is oftentimes very difficult and technically challenging. But now using embryonic stem cells, uh, because these cells can be propagated in vitro uh, very easily, and they can uh, retain the same potential uh, for a long period of time, uh, we can. Uh, and on top of that, we can modify them uh, to whatever way we want, uh, introducing mutations, introducing genes that are not uh, belong to that particular species. And then we can use these cells, inject them, them into early embryos. And uh, uh, during the formation of the chimeras, some of the cells will, uh, will contribute to uh, different tissues and some of the cells will contribute to the germline uh, with the, uh, the same species uh, the germline transmission is very important for generation of transgenic mouse, mouse models of human diseases for for a number of uh, years. Uh, with regard to interspecies chimeras using proponent stem cells, there, are, uh, there have been uh, several attempts. Initially, uh, with uh, rodent species, for example, between a uh, rat and mice, and between wood mice and mice, uh, the uh, the initial attempt was was uh, successful. Uh, we could generate rat mice chimeras and also wood mice and mice chimeras. Uh, in some of the uh, chimeras, you can see a robust contribution 
of the cells from the donor species into uh, the host species, in this case, the mice as a host species. Uh, so largely, uh, interspecies chimeras between rodents are more successful than interspecies between more evolutionary distant species, such as uh, using if you're using human cells, uh, injecting human proponent stem cells into uh, animal embryos, uh, the contribution was very limited. And uh, I still remember reading your paper, in, I believe it's in 2006, that was actually one of the uh, inspirations for me to get into this field is to, how can we solve the problem? How can we uh, overcome the barrier, early development barrier, so that we can improve the human cell contributions in the animal host uh, with the ultimate goal of generating human tissues and cells and organs uh, in the animal to solve, to overcome this worldwide shortages of the donor cells and tissues and organs. Well, I got to say, you've probably just made Daylon's month, Daylon's year, just based on the smile that's on his face right now after mentioning that he was part of your inspiration for getting into the field. So that's very exciting. Um, but certainly pluripotent stem cells have changed the game and more ways than one, whether it's working with the interspecies chimera technology that you're talking about, but also most recently, there are certainly a couple of bombshell studies that have dropped in the early developmental modeling field that have really caught the public's eye, you know, both the general and scientific public too. You're of course aware of these two, two studies released by the Jacob Hanna and Magdalena Zernika Goats labs describing these so-called synthetic embryos derived not from the fertilization of sperm and egg, but from mouse pluripotent stem cells cultures in these customized conditions, such as these roller cultures that Dr. Hanna, Hanna's group was pushing forward. What are your fresh thoughts on these brand new ex vivo models? Although they've been in the works for a while now, but you know, just published um, these new ex vivo models of mammalian development and these synthetic embryos, and what ultimately do you think is their downstream potential? Uh, first of all, I think these two studies are milestone studies in the stem cell field. Uh, although I have to see that I, uh, I have heard uh, Magda was talking about these results for a couple of times before the publication. Uh, so whenever I heard her talk, talking about this, I was out. Uh, just, just the fact that you can use pure cultured cells, cultured stem cells to generate uh, 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 embryo that exhibit uh, the, uh, a milestone that they want to process. For example, a beating heart and a neural tube. That is, in my opinion, that is remarkable. Uh, uh, although there is still a long way to go, as you can see, the, the models are not perfect and the efficiency is not, uh, not very high, but I think it's a, it's a great start for something truly uh, uh, spectacular. Uh, there are potential applications of these is, is now we can, uh, we know that with the role of culture, we can push the development of these synthetic embryos a little bit further. We can, um, we not only can generate specific cell type, but we can generate early embryonic tissues. Uh, and, and, and one of the potential applications is we can isolate the progenitor from this early progenitor tissues. And maybe those cells can serve as a better starting cells for differentiating into fully functional cell types in which uh, but we, as you can imagine with the field developed further, we can push this uh, limit further by uh, uh, developing mouse embryos, uh, maybe in the future, human embryo-like structures into a later stage so that we can uh, use uh, some of the fetal tissues or fetal organs for uh, therapeutic purposes. 
uh, yes, I think both studies are truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. Bombshell studies. And I, I like to think that, like you, uh, Jacob Hanna and Magdalena Zernika Goetz were inspired by my early work. Uh, so we'll have to send them <laughs> links to all of my papers and see if they can what can, they can make of that. But um, on, on a more serious note, uh, a big part of, of what has made uh, ex vivo de developmental studies possible is the establishment of cell culture conditions that are able to maintain uh, those, well, establish and maintain those earliest lineages, right? And part of your work has focused on developing conditions that foster cells with this expanded capacity for interspecies chimerism. So it seems like a really good alignment with this synthetic embryo story. Do, do you think refining the cell input, you know, by developing more refined culture conditions uh, for the input for these synthetic embryos can improve the developmental fidelity and the success rates of like true ordered gas relation, et cetera. What's, how do you think we're going to, we're going to improve it? I know you just alluded to it, but maybe you could put a finer point on it. Sure. I, I think starting cell is absolutely important for both of the uh, applications for chimeras, as well as for stem cell embryo models. Uh, and, and we, uh, for the past few decades, we have been uh, studying a lot, uh, focusing on this, proponent stem cells or embryonic stem cells, specifically in mice. Uh, as you, you know, uh, there, uh, there is a, a very strange task for proponencies called tetraploid complementation. So that has been developed in uh, 20 years ago about also. And then we know that embryonic stem cell can generate an entire uh, animal, adult organism after uh, injecting them into tetraploid uh, a blastocyst, suggesting that these ESLs, we culture individual, has the potential to do that. Uh, but what's lacking in the field is that uh, the understanding or a better culture condition for the actual embryonic stem cells. Uh, although Janet Rosan uh, published the trophoblast stem cell, the first trophoblast stem cells from mouse embryos in 1998, and also in uh, the link cells, the actual embryonic stem, uh, stem cells in 2005, we haven't made much progress uh, in improving those two different type of cells, uh, actual embryonic stem cells. So that resulting uh, in the inability in the past to uh, generate more complete, more functional embryo models. Uh, so what's, uh, what Magda and also uh, Jacob, Jacob did in these two papers is that they use a different strategy. They use transcript factors. Uh, and by using transcript factors that are specifically expressed in these two actual embryonic uh, tissues, they kind of force the cells, uh, starting from naive proponent stem cells, into become a more functional uh, trophectoderm or more functional parenteral endoderm. That allowed them to uh, assemble this synthetic embryo or stem cell models, uh, embryo models, to go uh, further than we previously uh, couldn't couldn't go. And I think I believe that uh, the developed culture conditions. Uh, for uh, a better culture conditions for actual embryonic stem cells will be more important uh, in the next few years to make uh, the embryo models or make the, um, the interspecies chimeras more, uh, you know, to uh, overcome some of the current barriers that we, we, uh, we are not be able to. Yeah, I think it's a critically important thing to consider optimal culture conditions because this is, we're talking about something that's so intricately regulated in early development. And I think another model system where, you know, 
optimal culture is really critical are, are these, um, you know, blastoids that your lab actually developed recently, these human blastocyst-like structures, blastoids, quote unquote, uh, that are generated from human naive pluripotent stem cells. And this is, of course, highlighted in your incredible nature paper that came out last year that showed remarkable similarity between these true human blastocysts and, uh, and, and blastoids, you know, between true you know, de novo or true, uh, truly derived human blastocysts and these artificial blastoids. Uh, so tell us where these things stand right now with this blastoid technology that you've pioneered. How is your group improving on it? What are some of the optimal culture conditions that you're focused on developing for the next stage of these blastoids? Uh, tell us about, you know, what's going on with the blastoids currently in your lab. Sure. Uh, I think before I, I, I talk about the blastoid, I need to, uh, I need to emphasize that uh, the the blastoid model or any other stem cell embryo models are not equivalent to the embryos. Although, um, you know, many of the by reading the paper, you're um, sometimes you believe these models are exact exactly the copy of the human embryo or a mouse embryo. It, they are not. There are still a lot of differences between them, uh, and uh, I think we should uh, we should uh, spend some effort in understanding the differences rather than try to. Um, you know, advertise that these models are the are the basically the exactly the same as a human as embryos. So uh, we we first published the blastoid model uh, last year. As you probably know, they are not perfect. Uh, so the uh, the efficiency was not very good. Uh, we we ended up with around fifteen percent of efficiency across different cell lines. And by single cell RNC, we identify there is off-targeting cell types found in these blastoid models. But we also, uh, through other assays, we also show that these blastoid models are very uh, similar to human blastocysts in terms of the size, uh, the composition of the lineages, and also this total cell number and uh, and cell number each different lineages. They are very similar. Uh, and and you may also know there are uh, several other papers published uh, after us, and then um, obviously with um, uh, improved efficiency, improved methods, and now the uh, especially with the a study with the Nicholas Rivers group, the uh, they were able to uh, show that you can generate a human blastoid starting with naive human proponent stem cell at an efficiency around seventy percent to eighty percent. I think that's very uh, very great. And they also show that some of the uh, the, the blastoid in general, the at uh, the transcriptional level, they mimic the human blastocyst. And we have also improved in my lab. Uh, we have recently. Uh, improve the efficiency and also the fidelity of our own models uh, using our own strategy. We use the two-step strategy and Nicholas Riveron and also De Guoyu, they use one-step strategy. But at the end of the differentiation, we found that our newly improved blastoid model also uh, they, uh, the, um, uh, around 80 to 90% of the efficiency and uh, the fidelity is greatly improved. What we're focusing on uh, is, is to use this blastoid uh, to understand uh, implantation and also the crosstalk between blastoid and uh, the, uh, the endometrial uh, cell, cells, such as endometrial epithelial cells, endometrial stroma cells. Uh, specifically, we were focusing on the stroma cells because once the blastoid or blastocyst, uh, if they ever implant into the uterus, the, the cell type that they inter uh, interact the most is the stroma cells. And uh, so we established a co-culture system by culturing the blastoid together with the uh, endometrial stroma cells that we isolated from the patient. 
And by doing that, we were able to find that the stromal cells can promote uh, the differentiation of the tropoblast and making them more easier to become syncytial tropoblasts uh, containing multinucleus than, uh, with, than the conditions that without these stromal cells. Uh, that's just the, one of the examples, but there are other examples that we, we can use blastoid for uh, various different applications. Uh, but during this uh, study, uh, we, we found that uh, blastoid and blastocysts are very different uh, in terms of their attachment rate, in terms of their, their uh, growth uh, on, on top of the stroma cells. We found that uh, the human blastocysts, they grow more robustly than the, our blastoid and the cells proliferate much faster than the blastoid. So it's something uh, that we still try to figure out the reason why. Obviously, we cannot do these type of experiments here in my own lab. Uh, we uh, collaborated with a group uh, in, um, uh, uh, in Colorado. Uh, it's called a CCRM. So they have a facility that we can use human blastocyst to do uh, research in this type of research. Yeah, I love I love that example that you use there because as someone who's really you know got a personal and professional interest in reproductive biology, that's the thing I think that uh, has been overlooked. You know that that end game of the attachment to the endometrial cells was used as kind of a proof. Oh, these are blasts with trophectoderm, and they can model this implantation type phenotype. But what I think you know the developmental biologists amongst us and, and reproductive biologists recognize there is that that kicks open the door to this whole black box that was implantation biology. And that there, as you are illustrating, the really important uh, lessons that we can learn, not just about like what the, the mechanisms there are, but like how these blastoids differ from human blastocysts and how we can maybe improve implantation for the purpose of better outcomes in the context of assisted reproduction. So it's such a great example. Uh, of how the real clinical output of this is not just, you know, chimerism or in vitro synthetic embryos, which maybe is the flashy headline. Um, it's real clinical upshot there uh, in, in a field that really has not had any models to explore this. And I, I say all that, but <laughs> uh, getting back to the chimerism, you know, I, I, as I just said, we can appreciate that the primary focus right now is application toward or chimerism at least and other uh, science to deciphering the many mysteries of developmental biology. But of course, we've all thought about the idea of utilizing interspecies chimerism as a means of generating human organs, both for clinical study or even transplant, right? Um, that faces many obstacles toward being feasible and practical, of course, but the progress I think has been remarkably swift and is still ongoing. Uh, I have a vested interest myself, again, in the clinical application of human eggs um, that have been cultivated in mouse xenografts from cryopreserved ovarian tissue for whatever reasons. You can look at my work for that. But so I'm hopeful, you know, I'm a fan. Um, but you are a scientist who thought very deeply about this. So I'm, I'm counting on you to give it to me straight here. Is clinical application of xeno derived cell products feasible in the current regulatory landscape? Like, can we get it through the FDA? I, I think uh, the challenge there um, currently is, is, to, is a, a, a the science and also technology is we're not there yet. Uh, the prospect of generating human tissues 
in animals are certainly very um, um, attractive, uh, especially uh, generate organs that are um, can be later used for transplant. But talking about science today uh, regarding interspecies, using interspecies camera, using xeno-derived tissues uh, and cells, we're not there yet. Uh, the reason being is that there's a, a lot of barrier uh, uh, during early development that prevent the efficient contribution of the human cells in the animal host that we are currently using, uh, for example, pigs. Even though pig and human are very similar in terms of their organ size, physiology, but they're still very different uh, in the um, evolutionary tree. They separated by more than 90 million years in evolution. And uh, we know that uh, evolutionary distance are in a way uh, is a measurement of how difficult we can generate interspecies chimeras. When we use more closely related species, such as the mice and rat, uh, we were able to generate more robust uh, chimerism, but with a more evolution distant species, this become extremely difficult. So we're still at the stage that we try to overcome the human cells survival in the early stage of the embryo development in mice and in pigs. So I would say that we're not, we're not there. Uh, yet. So I think, uh, I don't know when that will happen, when we can re uh, realize the dream, but uh, at least it's not there today. Yeah. Yeah. With, I mean, with that being said, there have been some very high profile victories recently when using xeno derived organs, for example, the humanized pig that was uh, genetically optimized uh, to uh, to modify its immune system so they could have organs like a heart, for example, that could be transplanted for some duration of time into that patient at, in, in Maryland. I mean, that was a that was a big milestone. It's not obviously we're not, not talking about chimeras in that situation, but we're talking about xeno derived tissues that are being transplanted into people. So certainly there is progress, but it's like what you're alluding to. It's extremely difficult scientifically to do these things for, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, talking about the long-term goal, it's no secret that one of the long, long, long-term goals that we're alluding to, whether we're talking about, you know, chimerism, blastoids is like we're talking about, you know, generating human organs to combat the current shortage of organs available for transplantation, and also perhaps to alleviate the black market, the black market for, for organ transplantation. I mean, Jacob Hanna, he directly mentioned this because he's got a startup that's going to be focused on something similar to this area of generating human organs for transplantation purposes. It's a, it's a huge need. Um, now, countering the developmental biology approach is the bioengineering approach, right? I think there's two independent means of thinking about this. You're, of course, a, a, a developmental biologist, first and foremost. But I think a lot of bioengineers are thinking about perhaps using 3D printing and other of these artificial approaches to actually also generate tissues and maybe one day organs for a transplant. And certainly as a developmental biologist, you have your own biases towards taking those chimeric or developmental-based approaches. But what are your thoughts on these bioengineering-based approaches for generating tissues and organs for transplantation? Or do you think the best bioengineer is the, the body itself? That's kind of a, a crude statement, but what do you think? So since you mentioned the xenotransplantation, I, I want to comment on that. Uh, the xenotransplantation uh, are more promising than the chimera approach currently because that involving the genetically modifying a pig uh, to reduce the immune barrier so that they can be transplanted into humans. There are 
as you mentioned, there are several clinical preclinical studies on that, and this seems very promising. And that xenotransplantation field has been going on for more than two decades, uh, more than two decades. And then uh, with the arrival of the CRISPR, now we can um, more easily make genetically modified pigs uh, than before. I think that really revolutionized this field. Uh, but back to the engineering approach, I still think uh, uh, it's one of the alternative ways that can be potentially possible in the future. Uh, the reason being is that if you read carefully about uh, the Jacob Hanna and, and uh, Magda's paper, you, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I was reading it, I, all of a sudden I realized we actually don't need the cells to go through the food to process in order to generate organs and tissues. So they're using naive mouse embryonic stem cell, which is equivalent to about these 4.5 mouse acroblast cells. And then they assemble these naive cells overexpressed with CTX2, GATA4, uh, to give rise to the, these two actual embryonic tissues. They assemble together into uh, embryo-like structure that the equivalent or similar to E5.5 embryos. And from that point, they culture in vitro and to about E8.5 that give rise to a newer tube and cardio, I mean, uh, beating heart, suggesting that if we have the right cell type, uh, maybe we can assemble at a different developmental stage of different tissues, different organs. So again, back to my original uh, thinking is that the starting cell is most critical. If we can, for example, isolate or culture a, a progenitor cells for the heart, let's say, and also the, the surrounding cells that are supporting cells, if we can culture them, uh, we show that they are more physically recapitulating what we observe in vivo. Maybe using engineer approach, we can put them together and assemble a heart de novo in vitro without going through the entire demonstrative process. I think that's what I learned from these two papers. What I kind of uh, uh, maybe these two papers suggest that we really don't need uh, starting from the zygote, fertilized egg. We can assemble tissues and embryos at different stage of the development if we have this right cell type. Yeah, that we've talked about it before or mentioned it at least on the show. It's such an exciting time to be in science, but specifically as a developmental biologist with stem cells, because there's this element of convergence, right? From all ends, bioengineering, developmental biology, genetics, CRISPR, uh, it seems like everybody is on the same track. And as you said, we're, we're kind of bypassing the need even to go from em embryonic rudiment. You could just get the organ enlage and the, yeah, necessitating the bioprinting, which is finally maturing. It's so awesome, this kind of scientific singularity we're in the midst of, or at least it seems. Um, but as you're kind of getting to there, uh, that would avoid a whole kind of bioethical maelstrom, right? I mean, at, at the front end of the chat, we were talking about the what the scope, what kind of chimeras have been made. And you you had another huge paper, one amongst the many feathers in your cap, looking at human macaque chimeric embryos uh, in like a kind of pe uh, peri-implantation phase ex vivo. Um, that was in cell about a year ago. So clearly the experimental capacity to intermingle earlier, early cell lineages between human and non-human primates, it's there, um, it's feasible. Uh, and we've talked on the show before about ISSCR guidelines on interspecies chimerism and ex vivo embryo development. So there is kind of guideposts there on, on how we all agree um, on what the limits should be. So we don't need to talk about that, but 
your insight, I think, is unique. I mean, you've had arguably the most firsthand experience with navigating a really tough bioethical landscape with the blastoids, with the interspecies. It seems like everything you touch, you got to have a bioethicist weigh in on it. So can you give us an idea of what the boundaries here are? Uh, maybe even it would be informative for you to share what experiments are out of the question, for example, and, and what it's like to, to have to really navigate all these committees at, at UT. Like, what's, what's it like to be in such a, a hotbed of, of controversy? Yeah, we'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, so for the human monkey extrieval camera work, it's not uh, done here at UT. So it's done in my previous institute when I was working with Juan Carlos Isbusso Balmonte at the Salk Institute. Uh, we're, we were collaborating with the, uh, with the lab in China. Uh, they have one of the largest uh, 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 macaque uh, colonies in the world. So we saw that uh, uh, we, we could team up with them to examine the contribution of, of human cells into uh, non-human primate species in the early embryo. The reason we were doing that experiment is, is not uh, we want to use macaque as the host species for generating human organs. Uh, the only reason was to examine uh, whether human cells has a better chance of contributing to the uh, early embryos of a species that are close related to human. Uh, to answer the question whether evolutionary, evolutionary distance plays a role into uh, interspecies cameraism, which we, we have uh, done that uh, with, with the rodent, but we, we don't have much of the information with the human. Uh, and by doing that, we, we realized that uh, with a limited uh, experimental setting that we were in, were used, uh, uh, the human cell indeed can contribute uh, at a higher level, uh, at least a seemingly higher level in the a, in a early macaque embryos, uh, cultured ex vivo. And, and also by single cell RNA-seq analysis, we were able to, uh, uh, to identify uh, these similarities and differences uh, of putting the human cell inside uh, macaque embryos and compare them with mouse embryos in the future maybe can help us to understand the, the, the differences between species. So here uh, at UT Southwestern, um, my lab is mainly focused on uh, using mice as a host to study uh, the, uh, the interspecies barriers. Actually, most of the uh, project in my lab is to use in vitro co-culture system between species at a different stage of the development. Since the start of my lab, we have established a co-culture system uh, between proponent stem cells from different species. Um, I'm hopeful that by using this individual model, uh, instead of using in vivo uh, embryos, we can, uh, can help us to understand the species barriers and xenogenic barriers, and it also can develop strategy to overcome these barriers. For example, we, by co-culturing, human and mouse proponent stem cells, we found that the mouse cells are, are become more aggressive. They starting to attack human cells in the process called cell-cell competition. Uh, in addition, but uh, we also uh, identify there are several other barriers, for example, incompatibility between cell-cell uh, uh, adhesion between species. Uh, we are actively working in that direction to overcome this incompat incompatibility of cell cell adhesion. Uh, we uh, almost there, but we're uh, still trying to figure out, uh, try to uh, perform the uh, chimera experiment to prove this, our strategy can actually work. We have uh, 
successfully overcome this competition in vitro, but uh, the next step will be uh, to to inject uh, human cells uh, after modifying the cell cell adhesion uh, incompatibility into the uh, early mouse embryos to see whether they can improve chimerism. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so uh, because of using the in vitro culture, we're uh, we're not uh, um, have the similar kind of ethical um, barriers that would be, that would I would if we were using uh, the early embryos for this work. Mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, blastoid, uh, I think that's a different uh, ethical challenges because when we first generate this. Uh, uh, or we first wanted to generate uh, process-like structures. We talked to uh, the, uh, the school committee at the UT Southwestern. Uh, they don't know uh, how to regulate this. They don't know uh, what, uh, because at that time there is no guideline uh, to regulate this type of research. And they, uh, I, luckily at the time there, uh, there is a, 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 a stem cell report paper uh, headed by Nicholas Rimuron and also Martin Terra and some other leaders in the in the field, they came up with uh, a recommendation before the uh, the ICCR uh, released their official guidelines last year that help us you know, help guide this line of research. So we I sent that article to uh, to our school committee. They they read it and they agree. Uh, it's better to regulate uh, with more precaution. Uh, so at the time they treated uh, as a human embryo, but uh, obviously I they are now human embryo, and 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 I show them that there is a differences. So they allow me uh, to to uh, to do this type of work in UT Southwestern. But as you know, in Texas, we're not allowed to work directly with human processes. But I'm very grateful and also very uh, happy that they allow me to continue this blastoid work and even to this day. So yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of considerations. You certainly have to consider where you are, um, you know, in, in terms of being in Texas. And I think one of the coolest things about the work that you do is how collaborative it is. Like you mentioned, you're collaborating with folks in Colorado, across the world. Um, and that's exciting in part because you have, uh, you know, different regulatory considerations to, to think about, but also the, the scientific influences and the scientific collaborations, I think, ultimately leads to, to better work. Um, you mentioned, of course, you are at UT Southwestern, which is a powerhouse medical institution and biomedical research institution. We actually just had a junior colleague from UT Southwestern, Ed Grow, on your on our show. And we always like to discuss why certain PIs pick the institutions that they they pick for starting their new labs. Um, Ed, you know, mentioned that the, there's a history of UT Southwestern for cutting edge biomedical research. In my own field, there's, of course, Eric Olson, who has been at UT Southwestern for a very long time and one of the, the grandfathers of modern cardiovascular biology. And you've had, your, you've had your lab at UT Southwestern for a little while there. So give us your perspective, um, you know, about what makes UT Southwestern tick as an institution, why it's such a powerhouse, and what do you like about the place? Absolutely. So uh, there are a couple of reasons that I choose UT Southwestern uh, when I uh, started applying for faculty jobs. One of the reasons is Eric Olson because um, uh, uh, he's a chair of our, my department and I know him uh, very well and he's very supportive in uh, stem cell research. Um, and uh, another reason that I moved here is that UT Southwestern is, is known for 
studying the mechanism to understand uh, how things work. Uh, so I think that's been lacking in a in a uh, in the stem cell field, especially the the interspecies chimera field. So there is a lot of hope and promises that are being made, uh, but uh, we we now we re realize there is many barriers to to the success of generating human organs and tissues in animals. But uh, the we I at the time I thought maybe I should choose an institute that uh, that uh, surrounded me with people that can give me help me to understand why it didn't work and which I I think I made the right choice uh, with the colleagues here on campus, uh, by chemists, the cell biologists, by talking to them, uh, that expand my thinking and also help me to uh, you know, build this individual system to uh, really dig deep into the mechanism, how uh, the interspecies barrier are regulated. Uh, by only doing that, we, we can uh, come up with the effective strategies to over overcome these barriers. And without that, I, I don't think that we'll, uh, uh, we will uh, realize our dream of generating human organs using this interspecies camera approach. Although we're still not there yet, but we're making progress one step at a time, uh, 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 overcome the barriers one step at a time. I'm still hopeful that in the future, we can understand the barrier enough so that we can develop effective strategies to really uh, have uh, our ultimate goal realized in the end. Yeah, for me, and uh, just listening to your answer there, it, it, it kind of presented in microcosm of chimerism as a field, kind of the arc of science uh, in that, yeah, because you said it, UT, what's great about UT Southwestern is a place where they're trying to figure out how things work. And I remember when we were doing the chimerism initially, you know, we we're seeing if it worked. But what we did is we, we, we did a first or one of the first steps in seeing how something didn't work right and I, I think that's always a first step in science is figure out how something doesn't work um and then perhaps why it doesn't work and 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 you've been just pounding away at this for so long that you're you're getting us to this really unique uh place in science where you're in a position now to figure out how it can work uh how it might work and ultimately i'm guessing how it will work um so i'm just you know excited to ha have been able to have this conversation and frankly i'm still beaming a bit just to consider that you, you read my paper and it had any input in your thinking. So uh, thanks for that. But before we let you go, uh, a couple of peripheral questions we have for you first. Uh, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that be? I'm a little bit biased. I want to understand proponency across all mammalian species. Uh, that's my actually, my ultimate dream is to uh, derive and generate proponent stem cells from all mammals on, on Earth. There are over 5,000, I believe, mammals. So as you can imagine, they will take a few more years and a few more trainees together. Uh, but that's ultimately my dream is we can, if we can understand how proponency is regulated across different mammalian species, that will help us uh, getting closer to understand how life is started uh, as a mammal uh, and, and uh, um, yeah, that, that's that's the ultimate question I want to answer. Wow, modest goals from Dr. Wu. I mean, you guys, you thought pluripotency was a thing, but uh, here after this conversation, you're recognizing that it is everything. Um, and lucky for us, we got June here, who's, who's going to go after it. Uh, finally, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? 
I think I think I will be uh, writing science fiction. Mm. Uh, I I really love science fiction when I was uh, growing up. So I think that's one of the passion. Uh, so if some of the ideas I cannot uh, do it in my own lab, in you know, if I'm not a scientist, I probably I'm putting the book and maybe in the future, uh, if some kids or people that are inspired by some of the ideas and maybe can make it work. So. Well, from a fellow uh, sci-fi geek, I can say, I, I probably speak for Arun here too. We would read that book, my friend. You, you, you get, send us a draft. I would love to walk around in your imagination. Um, and thanks uh, for sharing all these inspiring words. And uh, we hope to have you back after you've broken off a few more species of pluripotency and solved that mystery. Uh, thanks again, June. Uh, we'll see you soon. And thank you for the opportunity. Really enjoy the conversation with you guys. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Always nice having Dr. Wu on the show gets us into that whole other zone, thinking about chimeras, the future of cell-based science. We'll be back with another great guest in a couple of weeks. Until then, thank you so much for listening.